So there's this guy named Lee Weaver who has just decided to run for governor in Texas. And he's just a normal guy, not a polished politician. And he had this to say about his candidacy. He posted this on his uh, Facebook site. Quote, Turns out nothing clears your head quite like transplanting an enormously complicated idea from the safety and privacy of your own mind into the unforgiving wild west of the public square. Unquote. Now that quote really hit home with me because it's a big part of why I wanted to start this podcast. I wanted to take the running dialogue that's inside my head and speak it out loud because it does take a different shape as soon as you do. You realize that some of the things that bounce around in your own mind so easily sound ridiculous when you try to speak it. Which brings me to Tony Nash. Tony and I are friends, kind of at the professional level. I knew who he was because uh, he's a frequent guest on Bloomberg, CNBC, BBC, etc. here in Asia. He's an economist and he has his own company. Then it so happened that I started working at a company in a small office and Tony rented the room down the hall. So I saw him on a somewhat daily basis for about a year. So obviously we got to know each other pretty well. And Tony, as you'll hear in this conversation, has uh, some different political views than I do. He's a Republican and, uh, well, you'll hear, you'll hear him describe it himself. But first and foremost, he's a very nice and friendly guy. Even though I met him and got to know him in Singapore, he actually is also from North Texas and grew up like in the hearst Euless bedford area. Small world. The year that I was working there with him happened to overlap with the 2016 presidential campaign. So you can imagine as Trump was kind of gaining in the polls, Tony was kind of happily ribbing me that, are you ready for Trump as the next president? And I was quite, uh, I was quite amused, not in a, I was amused and bemused. And also as the timing would have it, I was actually at work during normal working hours when the election was eventually called for Trump. I think Tony could sense he was the only one in a fairly wide radius that was happy about the result. So uh, I give him credit. He didn't gloat. He didn't gloat, and I think he knew that uh, myself and others needed some space. But anyhow, that's all in the past now, and... uh, Here's my conversation with Tony Nash. I'm Dave Austin, and who are these people? Say something. Uh, do you have the... Can you hear me? Yeah, and I'm rolling. Did you, have, did you make sure that... Oh, okay. Uh, oh, shit. Oh, fuck. A lot exactly. of sci-fi ideas are becoming real. Yeah. It's like Barbarella's tongue box. Yellow. Yeah. Yellow. It is therapeutic. The last generation to be raised without the internet. Yeah. The first generation to jump into the internet. What, what does it mean? Like, did it really even happen? Hi, Tony. It's David. Hey, David. Good morning or evening. Yes. I'm sorry it's so late there. Oh, no. No worries. I usually do it a little bit later than this, so I had to... <laughs> uh, oh, and I'm, I'm actually... I just had my first sip of coffee, so... Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so we are, go. we are in opposite ends of the spectrum right now because, uh, yeah, I've just finished a full day's work and winding down, but I've uh, 
got a little bit of iced coffee here to keep keep me going till till this is over. <laughs> okay. So I'm just gonna jump on into it. Okay, sure. So you and I know each other because we shared an office for about a year, and uh, I feel like I know you pretty well. Um, and I wanted this to take this chance to talk to you about politics, politics, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. And, and um, the reason I wanted to do this one is that I mean, let me frame this for people who may not know who you are. Um, here in Asia, you're pretty well known, at least amongst people who watch uh, financial news television and who read yeah. read blogs and and read. Um, some of the columns and, and uh, stories that you write. And uh, you're known kind of as a conservative um, politically, and we've had some political discussions, uh, friendly ones. And, but I kind of made a yes. point. I kind You've of got to make sure it's known that those have been friendly discussions. They've all been friendly. <laughs> um, <laughs> hopefully we'll keep that track record going. Um, <laughs> but a, a lot of times I kind of avoided getting into into deeply because uh, I didn't want to just go down the path of like arguing over some little issue that's in the news that day um, that really doesn't, doesn't really have any kind of effect or, you know, I didn't want to just get into an argument for argument's sake, uh, which sometimes I'll do for the fun of it. But I really kind of wanted to start with a broader, longer discussion because while you're known as a conservative, I don't really know exactly where you stand I don't picture you. I don't sense that you're just a partisan who who um, backs whatever uh, whatever party is is saying at the time. I, I feel like you have like a whole worldview um, that uh, you support, and so I just kind of wanted to know, like, start from the very basics. Um, how do you describe yourself? You know, thanks. I, I think that was very kind, given the the wide gulf between our views. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I one of the things ways I don't describe myself is I don't describe myself as a conservative. Okay, okay? I describe myself as a Republican because yep. I believe that the Republican Party over the past really thirty years has has made some kind of unholy deals um, and be- become this Frankenstein monster that um, that actually couldn't get elected. okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of those have to do with the fusing of the words Republican and conservative. Um, and I'm involved in the Republican Party overseas. And I, I often make the clarification to people that I am not a part of the conservative party. I'm a part of the Republican Party. Okay. Um, and so uh, a fair bit of that is social conservative stuff. Or, you know, so I feel like Republicans have kind of painted themselves into a corner on a number of issues. Um, and I feel like uh, they've kind of become... These aren't my words. A friend of mine has used the words kind of beautiful losers, um, where many have forgotten that politics is actually a contest where winning is really a nice thing. Um, And so it's it's nice to hold to uh, to principles. um, But at the end of the day, if you're actually going to have 
have a career in politics, you have to get a job in politics, which means you have to get elected. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting, um, because right away, there's some things that I totally agree with, and some things I'm not, not quite sure I understand. So, sure. I, I do think, as a party, the Republicans have totally gone off the rails, and the, I think Frankenstein monster is a good description. Um, I, as a party, I don't really see them as any kind of effective uh, group that has an underlying ideology that unites them all. Uh, they really do. Sorry, s- wait, wait. Both, I, I believe both parties have become Frankenstein monsters. So, so those words I use, they're not necessarily just reserved for Republicans. Mm-hmm. Actually. Both of the major political parties in the U.S. have become Frankenstein monsters that have really mixed up uh, their ideologies. Um, And I think a lot of that started uh, in – it started in the 80s when you had Reagan Democrats. You had Democrats Mm -hmm. who were crossing boundaries into the Republican Party. Okay. Um, And And then with Clinton coming in and Clinton holding many – um, I guess Republican ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, it really kind of mixed the message. You had a very similar thing in uh, in the UK, where Tony Blair was basically a conservative with a with a Labour Party um, uh, kind of brand. Right. right? Okay. Well, so let, wait. Before nice, we get too far, nice Tony, really hold on a, a second. Tony, for, before we get yeah. too far, I want to I want to figure out the one thing that I I didn't understand about what you're saying, and because I'm. And by agreeing with you about the Republican Party, that doesn't mean that I'm that I'm defending the Democratic Party for you know for whatever they've done. I'm going to be objective about both sides. But when you said that the Republican Party is losing and not getting elected, elected, how can you say that when they've been elected so many times? Well, I think the and and this is uh, some of the difficulties with say. Um, say, state versus national office. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Republicans have been very successful at the state level, and I think many of the state-level politicians have been much more pragmatic in their views. Um, at the national level, um, you know, I think it's it's been difficult for Republicans to uh, well, I mean, you, you had the the Bush election in 2000 and 2004, really, where that party, where that power was kind of uh, consolidated for a short time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but since then, it's been extraordinarily difficult. And I think what's happened is, um, I think, if anything, uh, the Republican Party has become, I would say, a bit more kind of Jeffersonian. Um uh, in their view, and uh, I think the kind of big government uh, George Bush era is something that um, that just continued. So you know, this isn't a necessarily a Democrat issue. Kind of this started with this started with Bush post post nine eleven, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that just continued and continued and continued. And I think. Um, when you have uh, that type of organization um, that is really unaccountable. And I think what we've seen with many of these new um, 
kind of uh, organizational constructs in the U.S. government in the executive branches, they've become increasingly unaccountable. Uh, and, and so I, I think you have a uh, kind of a nexus of the Republican Party, not a nexus, but a, a kind of a germ, an idea of the Republican Party um, that is very old, um, that has come back to life where um, where Republicans are saying, wait a minute, you know, we really we really don't kind of want this. Um, and so and, and so I, I think that's a good thing. Um, I also think that um, kind of the alliance that was made between Republicans and Christians, quote unquote Christians, meaning uh, evangelicals in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, has become something where when you say somebody is an evangelical or a Christian in America, there's an assumption that they're also Republicans, but that's absolutely false. I mean, Democrats are Christians too. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, has also begun to break down. Um, and so the lock that that Republicans tried to get on um, on kind of values and family and, you know, all this stuff. Um, I, I, I think that lock kind of blew about 15 years ago, but I don't necessarily think the Republican Party really understood that kind of Democrats are Christians too, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. or evangel, you know, th- that sort of thing. And so, you know, and I think if you, if you kind of fast forward to, mm-hmm. um, to the current administration, I mm-hmm. think, you know, you know, no one could really argue that Donald Trump has had a, uh, a history as a pious evangelical Christian. Um, and I think that is part of what many Republicans found um, hard to swallow mm-hmm. uh, up until, I would say, probably October of 2016, when they realized, look, this is a guy. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a binary choice or we sit out, right? And I think what happened was, most, uh, many Republican voters who were not the purest kind of elites um, realized that they live these lives that are that are not perfect, mm-hmm. and um, and they actually have more in common with that kind of mixed uh, kind. Of we'll say aspirational purity, for lack of a better word, um, than the the kind of sanctimonious purity messages that we've heard from Republicans over the last, say, 15 years. Mm -hmm. So I find Trump to be a total breath of fresh air in that that way, because we, you know, as a Republican, I don't have to act like we're a moralistic, you know, more pure than the others type of party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually think that's a good thing because life is life and everyone faces decisions and trade-offs and all, everyone in life makes wrong choices. Everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Republicans had become this party of, well, actually we planned out our life and we've made the right choice, the right quote unquote choice at every turn and, you know, mama would approve, you know, those sorts of things. And that's just not the case. Okay. Let's just 
play a thought, have a thought experiment. Let's say, sure, David. <laughs> I'm up for this. I, okay, good. I, first cup of coffee this morning. I'm totally up for this. Great. All right, let's just clear the slate. There's no such thing as Republicans. There's no such thing as Democrats. And mm-hmm. Tony Nash gets to set things set things up the way they should work the best. What what would you do? Like, what would you envision as being the way things should be? Like, what's your brand of of government of you said you called yourself maybe like some social conservatives. What are the issues and the way that you would? No, no, no. Uh, I didn't call myself a social conservative. I just want to be clear about that. Okay, I thought you said that <laughs> that you 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 were a mix, but that some of it was like what would be considered social conservatism. Sorry if I misunderstood that. No, 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 no. I, I think social conservative is is where a lot of uh, Republicans went wrong. I wouldn't call myself a social liberal. I would really more call myself socially middle of the road. So okay. I'm an active Christian. I would mm-hmm. even call myself an evangelical. So I, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I don't necessarily think we've, um, you know, that that purity. I mean, if we can go into that belief system, um, anybody who th- calls themselves an evangelical and thinks things should be socially pure. Um, really hasn't looked into the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, we can have a long discussion about that, but this mm-hmm. guy hung out with with drunks and he hung out with prostitutes and, you know, all that sort of thing. And his course, first miracle, yes. his first miracle was making alcohol, right? Yes, first yes. recorded miracle. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily a socially pure type of mm-hmm. uh, environment. And so even, and coming out of my belief system, the guy was incredibly hard on people thought of themselves as socially pure. Mm-hmm. Very, very hard on them. Okay. Yes. And so, you know, I think again, I think where Republicans have placed themselves is a really difficult spot and one where they invite criticism. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, if you're living according to that belief system, the more inflexible you become, the more criticism you invite. Mm-hmm. Right. So going back to your um, your uh, question about what would I uh, how would I design things? Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I would have to think about that long and hard. But let's just take a couple of things that I know well, because I, I've lived overseas for 15 years mm-hmm. and uh, lived outside of the U.S., actually closer to 20 when I look at my time in Europe as well. Right. And let's look at some kind of contemporary issues. Mm-hmm. Um and and kind of talk those through about what I would what I would do. Okay, so so I think if we look at issues like um, you know in the post World War II era, we have this very multilateralist kind of what's become kind of this Potemkin village looks pretty on the outside, but really not that substantively deep. And uh, although there's a lot of rules and and this sort of thing, um, what's happened. I believe is you have a what a quote unquote multilateral system and you have quote unquote free trade, but increasingly it hasn't become a rules based system. Okay, mm-hmm. so you have these countries in the WTO and you have these countries in the UN and you know all this other stuff, but they're not necessarily playing by the rules. Okay, mm-hmm. because kind of the international enforcement infrastructure has broken down. And we can look back to the first Gulf War where the the um, IAEA was basically, you know, ignored by the Iraqis, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and you can even look further back um, to 
uh, multilateral organizations becoming just disregarded by the participants, right? Okay. So participation in things like the WTO, and and we can even look at the TPP, right? Mm-hmm. The TPP is a set of rules that, in an ideal world, probably be pretty fantastic, okay? Mm-hmm. But the participants don't play by the rules, okay? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, and and so I think generally you, you have Europe saying, hey, let's just sign these agreements and get everybody in and we'll worry about enforcement later. But that enforcement never comes. Right. Okay, okay. And generally you have um, Asian countries outside of Singapore. OK. Mm-hmm. Who and Singapore is a rules based uh, country and they comply with with a lot of the stuff. But many Asian countries will sign up to these things and not necessarily comply as well. They just want to be a part of the group, right? And they want the benefit without the compliance. So from an international perspective, whether whether that is um, uh, trade or whether that's uh, other multilateral agreements, the level of noncompliance is striking, okay? So if I were to redesign things from, say, diplomatic and, uh, let's say, international commercial perspective, one of the things that I would say a party is look at insistence on compliance with our multilateral partners. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay. Again, living overseas for years uh, and seeing uh, countries get involved in multilateral uh, agreements and multilateral activities and then not comply, what you what you really end up getting is a transfer of economic benefit from uh, from wealthy countries to emerging countries, right? So non-compliance is a cost to to wealthy countries. It's a benefit to emerging countries, right? Okay. Um, and so and so those sorts of things, I think, are are our foreign policy uh, has been. Um, well, muddled to say the the, the least, um, completely ineffective is is more how I would classify it. Um, for, I would say it's been completely ineffective since um, I don't know, probably the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think State Department is at best flaccid. Um, at worst, you know, it's uh, um, uh, incompetent. Okay. And so, you know, I think from an international perspective, um, the U.S. is a rules-based country. Of course, there are exceptions and of course there are issues. But in general, the the U.S. is a rules-based country. And in a rules-based system, the U.S. does extraordinarily well, okay? Um, But we haven't with state and commerce and uh, and Treasury and a number of these guys who who are involved in international agreements, we haven't necessarily enforced that in a multilateral sense. okay? so so what I would what I would want, again, from somebody who's lived overseas for a long, long time, is um, a a federal government that insists on enforcement, and a rules-based system, because that is to America's advantage. Okay, um, we do we do very well in that uh, in that environment. Okay, well, what about domestically? 
just broad strokes, like what do you, where do you see the role of government? Like there's, you know, a lot of Republicans say they're against big government. And yet, I mean, uh, but also Dick Cheney famously said Reagan's proved that deficits don't matter, you know, and then uh, uh, George W. Bush created an entirely new uh, bureau, you know, the Department of Homeland Security and government grew under George W. Bush. But obviously we have to have government, but what, what size and scope do you think it should play? Um, you know, I, I, gosh, that's a that's a very big question, and I'm not sure I have an answer to it. But I'll I'll tell you kind of my philosophy mm-hmm. around that. Okay, um, government has to be responsive to the people. Okay, mm-hmm. um, as I said earlier, I think a number of these departments and agencies within the federal government um, have become really unregulated um, and um, and when these guys are uncontrolled and unregulated, it's dangerous for anybody, whether it's America or any other country. Um, I think the the likelihood of, first of all, corruption is high. Second of all, oppression is high, okay? So I do think that uh, a, a federal government that is slightly, in some ways, slightly underfunded, okay, um, that has to be scrappy and has to figure out how to, how to get things done, I think is probably a good thing. I don't mean, think we need to have starving bureaucrats, but, um, uh, but the, I saw some data a couple of years ago that showed that the the average salary of a federal government employee now is higher than the average salary of a private sector employee. Okay, why is that wrong? Well, that's wrong because the federal government um, is accountable to the American people. Okay, it's not the other way around. But when you look at that compensation structure, it tells me that. The federal government that well that the American people are accountable to the federal government, okay? Because the people in charge, quite frankly, make more, right? That's just the way society works. Um, so, the federal government employees should not be making more than the private sector, okay? I think with things like healthcare, the federal government employees should have to have the same healthcare as private sector employees, if. If uh, something like the Affordable Care Act is required, then federal government employees, including politicians, should have to have that same thing, mm-hmm. right? So uh, the role of government for me generally is accountable to the American people. Um, it's not the other way around. It's, I think having a professional government class above the mid-levels is very dangerous um, because... Uh, it becomes then gaming the activities, um, gaming the rules and, and trying to um, improve individual positions within government rather than improving um, the state of the American people. But doesn't uh, some of that contradict what you were saying, that America does very well in a rules-based system and that America generally does follow the rules? 
no, I think um, as a America generally follows the rules because Americans demand it of the government, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, appointees typically, uh, because it's a relatively short period under which they're appointed, the average tenure of an appointed government official is about 14 months in the U.S., okay? Okay, yep. And so those guys come in with um, accountability and ideologies that dictate that they, you know, that they um, hold the bureaucracy accountable, mm-hmm. okay? So I don't necessarily think there's a contradiction there. Just curious, how do you feel about, like, the revolving door between politics and say, lobbyists and, uh, you know, people coming from the private to the public sector and kind of using their connections that they had in the public sector uh, to, to, again, kind of game the system when they get out? Well, I, that's probably pretty obvious. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I support the, the lobbying ban that, that the president put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you remember, and I don't mean this to be a partisan uh, comment, but it's going to come across that way. When uh, Obama came into office, he said they're going to be the most transparent um, uh, administration in history and so on and so forth. And what happened within, I think, two months, I remember reading, I think it was a Washington Post story in 2009. Within two months, nearly everybody in the White House was using their Gmail accounts to communicate with lobbyists um, and meeting them outside uh, of the White House um, for different things, okay? Um, of course, your Gmail account is not, uh, you know, it's not recorded in the archives and, you know, all this other stuff. So, um, you know, I think that dangerous uh, play for the White House, and, and obviously they set the tone for the rest of the government, right? So there's circumvention of the required transparency from the beginning. And I think when he came in, he said, at a certain level, uh, if you've been an appointee, can't become a lobbyist for 10 years or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I actually think that should apply across government. You know, you shouldn't be able to be, if you've been an appointee, you should not be able to be a lobbyist uh, for an extended period of time, if ever. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you went in to serve the American people. Um, granted, you took a you took a salary cut to do it, okay, but you should not. One should not um, be able to cash in on that after coming out because, of course, it's corrupt, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's corrupt. It's the definition of corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, so that goes for senators and uh, and congressmen, and that goes for appointees, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's the definition of corruption. Mm -hmm. Okay. I agree. (laughs) Um, and I'll kind of give you just my philosophy first, which is on a lot of the details. Um, I'm open to negotiate, you know, I'm not really married to like any particular way to get things done on, on a, on a range of issues. But like some things that are very important to me, I would say probably the two most, the two things that are the most important to me are just human rights and civil rights. And to me, it seems like that's one area where the Republicans are weak 
in that they do not necessarily protect human rights and civil rights as well as they should. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> um, <laughs> of course they do. I think, you know, when, um, you know, going back to, you know, Bush, I think with the Gulf War, you know, p- people were suggesting that, uh, you know, the protests, even at his ranch, you know, outside of his ranch were something that he should have stopped, this sort of thing. And he's, he said, look, you know, that people have the right to do this stuff. So I, I don't. I don't see, I hear that uh, kind of programming from Democrats, but I just don't see it in the implementation of policy under Republican administrations. Um, I do feel like, I'd say with different Chinese dissidents and everything else, you you don't get the grants under Republican administrations that you do or Democrat administrations. Sorry, you uh, cut out there again. Did you say? Did you say uh, grandstanding or grand something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, you know, you, you don't get the grandstanding of uh, you know uh, making celebrities of certain Chinese dissidents and appointing them to faculty of certain universities or whatever. Like, you know, I think all you're doing is is um, is upsetting diplomatic partner um, and. Um, and I think there is a much more pragmatic approach to doing that. If people need uh, shelter, then fine, give them that shelter. But but you're not necessarily um, making news uh, with that. You're taking a more pragmatic to that. So um, I, I just I just see it again. I know that uh, that Democrats point that finger and I know that uh, Republicans are very weak at responding to it um, but I, I just don't see that when it comes to the, the practicalities of of, um, of policy well, what about like the torture policy uh, which one particular uh, like the CI sorry, the uh, uh, Ex, what would they call? It? What was the euphemism? The not extraordinary rendition, but the um, enhanced interrogation. You know, the the um, after nine eleven and the Iraq invasion, where the CIA program came up with the the way, and there was that famous torture memo. Was it John Woo that wrote that or something? Um, like to me, I, yeah, that yeah. seems like a backsliding on human rights for the U.S. government. Yeah, that's possible. I. I'll, very honest, I've heard a lot about torture policy, and I've never really looked into it because I just haven't. Partly because it's such a lightning rod issue that um, I, you know, I, I've known that when it comes up, it just emotions, um, and so I, I haven't really looked into it. Um, but I would say. Generally, um, and and this is probably a very ignorant statement. Um, I think torture is not necessarily something that that we do uh, as Americans, um, and I I think that certain policies um, are put within a certain historical context, um, and so you know it's very difficult to judge right now on what happened even 15 years ago. Um, given what was happening in the U.S., that's not to excuse it, 
Um, but I think there was a sense with that administration that they had to have answers for certain things um, uh, at that point in time, and they and they justified it. Again, I'm not, I'm not justifying their policy. I'm just trying to kind of understand why they did and 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 how they did that. So, um, but I think. Things like waterboarding or whatever, those things are not a part of U.S. Uh, tactics anymore. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, over time, um, that stuff becomes, you know, more light is shed upon it and more work is done on it. And um, and the bureaucracy, you know, implements uh, policies according to uh, American norms. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> um, I do want to change the subject now to a subject that you know pretty well, which is this whole um, business news world that you live in and that I live <laughs> in as well. Because, yeah. uh, and now I've seen all sides of it. You know, when, when I think I first met you, I was still working at CNBC, but mm. I was on the advertising side. Um, and then I you know, certainly have done lots of things with lots of economists. I've seen countless hours of um, financial news television, and now I'm even working for BBC uh, for the Asia Business Report, actually helping to produce that show. And so I think I can say with some degree of uh, knowledge, of inside knowledge, that Business news television is really not necessarily the best way to get your information about what's going on in the economy or in business. Um, it's a lot more of just, I mean, it's a, I'm talking about television specifically. It, it's first and foremost a TV show, you know, and it's got to keep people entertained. And it's good to let you know the headlines of what's going on that day. But when you get down to it, there's if you want real information, uh, people who are like actual traders and things like that, they're getting it from their Bloomberg terminal or from their Thomson Reuters icon. It's certainly if you want more in-depth analysis, you're getting it from print. Uh, what do you think about business news television? Um, I, I'm not so cynical about it. Okay. okay. I think, um, what it tells you is what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't necessarily think it's designed to be that deep dive into, um, you know, some particular issue. I think it's designed to help you understand what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what, particular individuals are thinking about certain issues. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there is a portion of it, and I've, I've said this, you know, uh, before, uh, if you see my Twitter feed, I've <laughs> said this, I'm pretty critical actually, but I think a lot of particularly what economists say on television is absolute garbage. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, Many of them, all they do is take a consensus view and 
um, and dress it up in in a narrative that works for the sell side of their bank or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, but I think when you look at the news organizations themselves, I think generally, now there are exceptions, but I think generally on the business news side, I, I think you've got some really smart people uh, at the desk who are asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they have a not easy job because they're taking in a lot of information and they're getting different people and personalities in and they're trying to create an environment where those individuals feel comfortable talking and giving something uh, that is meaningful to the watchers and not just a shameless pitch, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so a lot of what they're doing is true. They generally, I feel that those uh, people behind the desk, they have to know the issue well enough to kind of sheepdog that, uh, you know, that conversation back into relevance when the guest isn't experienced and doesn't know how to talk on TV Mm -hmm. or goes into pitch mode and starts pitching their, their company, right? right? Or their agenda or whatever. So I think it's, look, it's live TV. So honestly, you don't know what's going to happen. And so I I actually, I I take a a less cynical view than you do. I think um, from a viewer's perspective, um, I find, uh, I mean, when you're watching, say, a portfolio manager and stuff, many of them, of course, they would deny this, but many of them are probably pitching their book. Right. Yeah. They're trying to convince the viewers that their investments are the right investments. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's just the, the nature of the beast. Um, I think people like economists, um, I think the discipline of economics has become so poor that many economists that you watch on television actually don't understand what they're doing. And they don't understand how the world is structured. And, and they actually, they have never done business. They've never been involved in a transaction. They, they, they don't know how economics actually works. Mm-hmm. And many of these guys understand economics through spreadsheets and they don't even get, and walk, get, get out and walk around mm-hmm. and see what's happening in an economy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think... There are some very good ones, okay? Mm-hmm. But I would say most of them pretty poor, actually, um, and and very numbers-oriented. So I think business news that you get from that perspective mm-hmm. is uh, it's 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 like reading a textbook. It's not like your front door and and or or going, let's say, um, uh, Shanghai or Hong Kong or Tokyo and really understanding how business mm-hmm. and what's happening. Yeah, I guess that's kind of more of the criticism I have, or it's really not even criticism, I guess just observation, uh, is that in a way it kind of boils down to like, well, it's, it's really it's the cliche of that you can never get two economists to agree on anything, you know, and it it's like, who knows what is a good economy? You, you pretty much could have well, any data point that comes out, you know, you could have economists saying like, oh, well, that's, you know, this is too high. Oh, no, no, it's much too low. And it's it's really like, I, we've made this joke before about talking about the weather and you and you pointed out that weathermen have a much higher 
accuracy rate than economists. But it it does seem a lot of times like it's just does anyone even agree what is a good economy? And you would think not <laughs> by right. by some of the comments that you get. And it, and on any given day, uh, you can have different economists show up or, or analysts, and they kind of like will take a totally different track from the person that was on before, which which is what you want. But it they don't even seem to be like referring to each other like a discussion. It's just really they're kind of in their own little worlds in a way. Well, but here's the deal, David, and and this is I think most consumers of economic data, not economists, mm-hmm. but most consumers of whether they're investors or companies or whatever, they don't understand this this one point. Okay, most economists don't build their own models. Okay, you said they don't build their um, they, own models. Is that what you said? Because it cut they, out. Right. They, yeah, they don't build their own models. Okay. okay? And because they don't build their own models and they don't understand the underlying statistics of those models, they don't understand the interdependencies of different elements of the economy. So super nerdy here now. Mm-hmm. But, and I'll tell you a, a really um, terrible secret within kind of the world of economics, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, most economists simply look a consensus figure in order to put out their forecast and they'll game it up or down you know 10 you know 0.1 percent or whatever Mm -hmm. but they're gaming their number to a consensus figure outside of a model okay Mm -hmm. and they're more worried about being quote unquote right which means in the ballpark of consensus Mm -hmm. than actually coming up with a view so I was with, and we're not going to name names here, okay, but mm-hmm. I was with a very large, very well-respected economics firm, okay? Mm-hmm. And the economists that they had doing their forecasts were people who had degrees in political science, okay? okay? So, you know, you you have this organization where people are writing about economics and and deciding on the numbers and, you know, these sorts of things. And you don't even have, you know, economic empiricists, you know, putting this stuff together, okay? Um, at the same time, I, I don't know of a single economics firm that actually has people who understand a local economy and what's going on outside of, say, Europe or the U.S. Because all of these economists are sitting in London or New York or DC or something like that. Mm-hmm. They're they're 25, 26 year old kids. They've never been to say Indonesia or China or Korea or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're they're talking about policy in these places that they read in the English language newspapers that report on those countries. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the level of of uh, of economic experience, economic capability and knowledge is extremely limited and very, very sophomoric, okay? From the analytical perspective, they don't build their own models. They don't know the interdependencies and trade-offs. From the environmental perspective, they don't know local languages. They don't understand. They're holding, say, an emerging country up to a Western standard or, you know, in terms of the trade-offs they have to make. Um, They don't look beyond the headline... um, uh, say, 
talking point that they've heard from some other economist, meaning, hey, Southeast Asia is this great consumer-led economy, when in fact, we looked at the data and we ran a piece six months ago saying, actually, that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so, you know, but they, you know, they take these, these top level talking points and they justify it because that's what everyone else is talking about. Yeah. Right. Because that's safe. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and what happens is you get terrible economic analysis, terrible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and you know, this is why I started my company not to pitch, but mm -hmm. because I got so tired of mediocrity in economics mm -hmm. and um, you know, if you look at the the nominal growth, let's say the GDP of every country in the world, even major countries, yeah. okay, according to the economic models of every economist out there, it adds up to more than global GDP. Okay. okay. All right. So, you know… Uh, the underlying thesis of, of, of our firm mm -hmm. is that the world economy is a closed system, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. Aside from the International Space Station, we're not exporting things off of the, uh, off of the, the <laughs> right. globe, right? Yeah. But every economics firm out there has this stack up of a growth and growth forecast that leads more than what's actually managed consumed in the world economy, which is utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. And the fact that nobody thinks that mm -hmm. and questions that and wait a minute, this this is a problem and we need to reconstruct things. Mm -hmm. um, the math, the models that almost every economics firm is, uh, is using out there haven't changed since about the 40s. Right. Okay. The good ones are using things that, that changed in the 60s. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's like, look, and those, those economic approaches were developed era of information opacity, okay? Mm -hmm. When you just had to make things up, right? You didn't know what, say, Cambodia's GDP was, or you didn't know what was going on, and even Russia at that time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so these economic theories are generally developed in an era of opacity. Mm -hmm. um, and so... What you have now is is just an overwhelming amount of data out there. A lot of it, well, not a lot of it, but a portion of it is is just flat out wrong. And we've gone through to understand which uh, data and uh, and indicators are just not right. Mm -hmm. it has to do with sampling. Now, this is getting very nerdy, but it has to do with sampling methodologies. It has to do with uh, technical capabilities and so on and so forth. But but we know which data generally are are just wrong, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but most economists don't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to understand what the first, second, third degree error rates are of the underlying data that's mm -hmm. out there, right? And if you don't know that and you don't know how markets work, 90 plus percent of economists out there see their job as arm's length from markets, mm -hmm. okay? And so they'll come up with these views that are isolated from what's actually happening in the economies, mm -hmm. right? And that just, that doesn't work for anybody, okay? It may work for academics who are doing very 
specific analysis, but it doesn't work for anybody else. Mm -hmm. And again, this is the kind of one of the dirty secrets that people don't know about the forecasting industry is, you know, if you ask most economists about what's happening in markets, they have no idea. And they have no idea how those markets function. Mm -hmm. And we don't see a separation between, say, markets and top level economics, Mm -hmm. right? And we actually think GDP is a terrible way of looking at economies, right? So, um, but again, you know, when when going back to your original question about business media, Mm -hmm. I think the the guys behind the desk are really doing their best and they're trying to balance between very specific people who understand market action and top level economists who don't understand market action, but have broadly relevant forecasts that people think they can understand, mm-hmm. right? That's a, that's a difficult uh, that's a, a difficult kind of chasm to span. I think. well, good. So I'm, I'm in favor of business media, not just because I, I go on and, and those guys, but I think they they have a very good in trying to get granular data out there, which they can't do overly granular data, but getting granular mm-hmm. data out there and getting top level data out there. I'm a, I'm a fan. Well, it certainly is a skill and uh, I do yeah. give them credit and especially the ones who go in and do it day in and day out. Um, it, listen, the, the last things you said, I mean, you, you gave us a lot of information that it leads to a lot of questions, but I know you need to go. Is that right? You, you need to run? I do. Yeah, I do. I'm happy to come back. Yeah, we'll have to do a follow-up. Yeah, that's great. So um, I don't know how to wrap this up. I'll just say talk to you later, Tony. Great. Thanks, David. Thanks a lot. Uh, I look forward to continuing the the discussion, really. Okay. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Someone Else's Memories by Revolution Void and Calm the Fuck Down by Broke for Free are used under a Creative Commons attribution license.